Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, Fiddler on the Roof is one of the best loved musicals of all time. It features some great songs like, If I Were a Rich Man. Yeah, my wife told me not to do that part, but yeah, thank. Now you're going to have this, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and take credit for this throughout this day. You're going to have that earworm going through your ear. But also, um, Matchmaker, remember? Matchmaker. Years ago, when I took voice lessons, I, I learned Sabbath prayer, and I, and I sang it in a recital, and, and also in the chapel I was serving at the time, and, and some of you were probably saying, well, you should get some refund for some of those lessons. Um, <laughs> the, opening song of, uh, the opening song of Fiddle on the Roof is a song titled Tradition. And the family members, one by one, they sing that they, they roll, they play in that traditional Jewish family in the little town of Anatevka. But on every side, tradition is being threatened. While the fiddle on the roof is, is fiction, the power of tradition is not. I come from a very traditional culture, having grown up from age 14 wearing a Navy uniform. And trust me, the Navy has a lot of tradition. Today we have traditions that, that we treat with great importance, and, and this is nothing new. Jesus lived at a time when tradition was valued so much, as we're going to see, that it was put on par with Scripture. For 20 weeks now, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. It's a fast-paced Gospel. His favorite word, as I pointed out to you, is what? Immediately. I heard it over here. Someone's been listening. It's immediately. Go through your Bible, search your, uh, circle immediately every time it's found there in Mark. He keeps moving rapidly. He's very selective in the, in, the, in, the, in the sections that he chooses to write about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I've pointed out that Mark's primary source was the Apostle Peter. But while Peter was his source, Peter insisted that he not be the focus, the star of the story, the hero of the story. It's Jesus Christ. Peter understood, it's not about me. Last week, we saw Jesus rush the 12 disciples off in a boat after the feeding of the 5,000 plus. Some things happened, and the Mark tells us in the end that they were completely amazed. They had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And if you missed the last couple of weeks, or if you missed anything back to, to October when we started this series, you can pick it up on podcast uh, off of either our Facebook page or our website or Apple Podcasts or any of the millions of places that you can get that. And I encourage, if you don't understand what I'm talking about here, about the, their hearts being hardened in the loaves, you need to go back and pick up at least the last two weeks. Well, chapter 6 of Mark concludes with this. It says, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him 
to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. Remember the lady a few weeks ago? Jesus is on his way to heal and, and to, to raise the little girl, the little 12-year-old girl from the dead. And along the way, he's in the busy street. And this, this lady with the issue of blood for how many years? For 12 years. She just wants to touch the hem of his garment. I'm sure that lady had something to do with this. They just want to touch the hem of his garment. And all who touched him were healed. Now at this point, Jesus and his apostles, they're on the, they're on the west side of the lake. And Gennesaret is a kind of, you know, maybe five, ten miles uh, west of Capernaum, which was kind of Jesus' base of operations there along the northern Sea of Galilee when he was there. And this section of Mark is an important transition in the book. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus was at the peak of his popularity. He fed the 5,000 plus, which as we said was probably more like 10 to 20,000 folks when you count the women and children. And it was a miracle so powerful that the gospel of John tells us that the crowds wanted to take him, run him off to Jerusalem, and make him king by force, a political king. But that wasn't the father's plan. And once Jesus refused to be an earthly king, we're going to see his popularity slowly decline. There were still crowds that followed him in, in different villages, but they were not quite as, as large as the crowds that we've seen in Galilee. And from this point forward, Jesus is going to focus most of his efforts on the core 12 disciples as he prepares them for the task of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, while this begins a slow fade in, in Jesus' popularity, the work of the Jewish leadership to discredit Jesus starts to gain momentum in chapter 7. John 6 tells us that it was around the Passover when Jesus fed the 5,000 plus. And at this point, we're in, we're in the final year of Jesus' life before his death on the cross. By telling us it's Passover, we know that it's in the spring because that's when Passover occurs. And this morning, we're going to work our way through this text, and I promise it's not going to, for those of you that were here last week, I promise it won't be as long as last week. And I heard all the amens out there. We're going to work our way through the text, and we're going to let the story unfold, and as we do, we're going to find some things. The first thing we're going to find is that the Pharisees and the scribes criticized Jesus' disciples for not following their tradition. The Pharisees, it says in verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Now I'm going to stop right there and look at this because we have an official religious delegation coming from Jerusalem to check Jesus out. These people are from the center, the epicenter of Israel. They're from the epicenter of Judaism. They taught in the schools. They were the best and brightest thinkers. This was a prestigious contingent. They came from the big city of Jerusalem to the small rural community of Capernaum at the request of the local Jewish leaders who were looking for a way to confront Jesus and to discredit him. We already saw all the way back in chapter 3 that they were trying to figure out a way not just to discredit him, but to kill him. That's why they brought these guys, these, these hired guns, the, the heavy-duty guns from Jerusalem. And they were putting serious effort into trapping and getting rid, rid of Jesus. And then verse 2 tells us this. They saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean. That is, unwashed. 
Now, after investigation, these bright men with quick minds could not find anything substantive to critique Jesus about when it came to issues of the Scripture. So they resorted to critiquing him on what appears to be a minor technicality, but us in our 21st century mindset, far removed from the traditions and, and, and the mores and the culture of Israel and first century Palestine, we're going to need to look at this deeper to see what was really going on here. You see, some of Jesus' disciples were not properly rinsing their hands before they ate. Now, that sounds incredibly petty. You know, this is something that your mother told you to do. Well, go, go wash your hands. Make sure you use soap. Make sure you use hot water. Make sure you wash for, for 20 seconds or whatever it is. Or what, what's that thing they want you to sing during COVID? Sing happy birthday or whatever during, you know. How many of you really wash your hands that, that long? Confession time. You know, couldn't they find anything more significant to critique Jesus' disciples about rather than not properly washing their hands before dinner? The truth is, this is much more. This isn't just mere sanitation, okay? This was a matter of following tradition. It, it, people in that day weren't ignorant. They already knew that, they, that you needed to wash your hands. They were dirty if they were filthy, if they'd been, you'd been out you know, doing farm work. If you ever worked on a farm, you know you want to wash your hands before you go in and eat dinner. If not, you're going to get smacked upside the head in my house growing up. Um, you know, people in that day weren't ignorant. And what's going on here all started out in the book of Leviticus, one of the first five books of, of, the, of the Bible in the Torah. The priests, note this, the priests were given a number of ceremonial hand washings that they were to follow. And these ceremonial washings of the priest were to demonstrate the need for cleansing from sin as a part of their priestly functions. These priestly hand washings were not given by God for everyone to follow. They were only given to the priest. And that's very key to understanding what's actually happening here. But once they were given to the priests, over time, they had become a tradition that many of the priests then expected the common people to follow. And Mark added a comment here, starting at verse 3, to explain this, because remember, Mark is writing primarily to a, to a Gentile audience. Matthew wrote his gospel to a, to a Jewish audience. Mark's writing to a Gentile audience who may not understand this stuff the same way that we don't necessarily understand it. So Mark says parenthetically in, in verse 3, he says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial. That's very key. You want to circle that word ceremonial washing. Holding to the, another word to circle, tradition. It's ceremonial and it's tradition. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as watch, washing. Sorry to pronounce the way my wife from southern Ohio would do, washing. There's, there is an R in there in southern Ohio. <laughs> such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. You see, about 200 years before Jesus, pious Jews began thinking that the way they could show their love for God was to adopt the priestly hand washings. And of course, the priests applauded this. You know, you're going to follow my example? Good, go ahead and do it. And see, they thought that that way it would make them look like they were super dedicated to God. Hey, look at me, thumping their chests. And so they began to, to spread among the people as they tried to outdo one another in showing their devotion by performing these priestly hand washings washings in everyday life. And people were pressured to wash their hands in this ritualistic fashion before every meal and even, be, even between the courses of the meal. And the, and, and the, the amount of water required for this, this washing reveals what little sanitary value it really possessed because it, it was as little as one and a half eggshells of water. 
Now, we would agree, we can't really wash and sanitize your hands with one and a half eggshells of water. And if a Jew went out in public, they, they, the ritual washings are even more extensive because they might have, you know, rubbed elbows with an unclean Gentile or, or a Samaritan out there. Remember, this was a ritual washing. In addition, the scribes and the Pharisees had developed other traditions that they enforced, not just the ritual washing for your hands, but of pots and pans, as Mark is telling us here, to make sure that everything was ceremonially clean. There were more than 30 pages, more than 30 pages in the Jewish Mishnah describing the proper way to ritually wash pots and pans. You got to remember, this was not about sanitation. Hot water and soap weren't what the emphasis was on. It was about ritual and this, the, the, the ceremonial value. And there was very little, little practical value in it. And the Jewish leaders had developed these traditions and forced them on the people that were never required by Scripture to observe them. The leaders didn't really care what was going on in people's hearts. What they cared about was external obedience to their traditions. And to give us a better understanding of these traditions, uh, you know, how they developed and what happened over time, allow me to get kind of professorial for a few, for a few minutes. Uh, I want to give a quick historical overview of, of how this happened within Jewish culture. You know, when God gave the law to Moses the, at Mount Sinai, the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, you know, we know that as the first five books of the Bible. He gave it to them, but the people, God's people, consistently broke God's law. So God sent them into exile in Babylon, and they spent 70 years in captivity there because they didn't follow God's instructions to them. Seventy years later, God led them out of captivity, set them free, and he brought a group of them back to Jerusalem. And the people knew that they had been sent into captivity because of breaking God's laws, and so to avoid being sent into exile again, they knew they needed to learn God's law, and they needed to follow God's law. And so one of these guys that came back was a guy named Ezra. We've got a book in the Bible that he wrote. It tells about him bringing, leading them back to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Ezra was one of the first of a group of men called scribes. And a scribe's job was to study the law and to help people understand the law so they could follow the law. Now to ensure that people wouldn't break the law, scribes after Ezra decided to put a fence around the law. The fence was a, a set of extra rules beyond the law that were, to make, that were even more secure, uh, severe than what God required. And the reasoning was that if people observed the fence, they wouldn't even come close to breaking God's laws. And as a result, over the years, in an effort to build a protective fence around the law, they developed ritual after ritual and ceremony after ceremony, layer upon layer of prohibitions. They took rituals and ceremonies such as the priestly hand washing and forced them on all the people. The hope was that this increased piety and offense and the extra rules would keep them from disobeying God's law. And then they could remain in the land. Well, these fence rules continued to grow over time until a massive amount of material was developed by the scribes. And in the time of Jesus, they referred to it as the traditions of the elders. And that's what, that's what they're saying here. Why don't your disciples follow the traditions of the elders? Now, you've got to remember, it started out, it started out with good intent. It was intended to protect the law. But over time, as we're going to see, it began to replace God's law. The massive oral tradition of the elders was finally pulled together and written down by a rabbi named Yehuda. He put all these traditions of the elders into a book called the Mishnah. 
And Mishnah simply means to repeat. And his hope was that, that the book would help the traditions of the elders be repeated for many generations. Rabbi Yehuda did not edit these traditions. He just put them together. He just compiled them. And some of the material was good and helpful. Some of these traditions, though, were bad. Uh, other traditions were, were the words of foolish and even crazy men. And the Mishnah contained all of it. It was the, the total accumulation of Jewish tradition. The Mishnah was so large and so eclectic and confusing that Jewish leaders then needed to write commentaries to explain it because it was so confusing. And these commentaries were called the Gemara in Hebrew. And at that point, you had a huge Mishnah, you had a huge Gemara, you had this library of, of extra-Jewish traditions covering hundreds of years, and the Gemara trying to, trying to explain the Mishnah. And then both of these were eventually put together in something called the Talmud, which you may have heard of when Jews refer to the Talmud. The Talmud was, was what the rabbis in Jerusalem put together. And as if the Jerusalem Talmud wasn't big enough, the rabbis in Babylon decided that they need to write their own Talmud. So there's a, there's a Jerusalem Talmud and there's a Babylonian Talmud. But the Babylonian Talmud is much better because it's four times as long as the Jerusalem Talmud. Even more traditions of the elders. And so this is what they have. And as if they didn't have enough rules about Scripture, then the Jewish leaders added the Midrash. The Midrash was a rabbinic commentary on the books of Scripture. So you have this huge mass of extra traditions added to the Scripture, designed to be a fence around it to protect and so large and complex that for, for all practical purposes, they had replaced it. In verse 5, it says... The Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? So you see it there, our key, our key term this morning, tradition of the elders. They were so concerned about the disciples that they weren't keeping the traditions. Over time, these Jewish leaders were given their own words and traditions as much authority as the Scripture and so what looks like a petty accusation in their minds was a very serious accusation to them because they were given their traditions far too much authority, the authority of the Scripture itself. And to show you the kind of authority that they had given, let's, let's look at a couple quotes from the Talmud here. The first one here, the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. Can you imagine Moses saying that? I don't think so. It is a greater crime to transgress the words of the school of the rabbi Hillel than the words of Scripture. My son, attend to the works of the scribes more than the words of the law. So they're basically saying, attend to the words that man has given you to explain the law than the words that God himself gave you. In other words, did God do a good enough job? And then down here in Shabbat 1-3. Whoever is firmly implanted in the land of Israel, who speaks the holy language, who eats his food in purity, as required by hand-washing rituals, and recites the Shema morning and evening, is assured of what? Life in the world to come. So basically there it's equating eternal life with God to doing these actions, these, these things. Speaking Hebrew, living in the, in the land of Israel, washing with the ceremonial washings, reciting the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, each morning and each evening. The Talmud basically is saying, this is what's important. It doesn't matter what's happening in your heart. 
But Jesus disagreed with the traditions that were given authority equal to or surpassing God's word. Jesus disagreed with this. He tells them, verse 6, He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Now, now Isaiah is writing this 800 years before Jesus. And Jesus says, you, are, you have let go of the commands of God, and you are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. So Jesus responded to the Jewish leader's claim that his disciples were out of line with a quote directly from Isaiah. And there's two points that Isaiah makes with these words that Jesus wants us to know. And we're going to look at this first point very briefly this week because we're going to come back to this entire topic as we continue in, in Mark chapter 7 next week. And we'll spend the rest of our balance today on the second point. But the first point, just briefly here, the first point is they were about lip worship, not heart worship. And lip worship is useless worship. Isaiah said the people in his day were all about worshiping God with their lips, not with their hearts. They were more concerned about, about what, what worship looked like on the outside than what it was actually taking place on the inside. And that concern with the rituals of, of external worship to the, to the neglect of genuine heart worship was also happening in Jesus' day with the scribes who were more concerned about people doing these ritual washings properly than they worried about someone's attitude toward God. And this can still be a problem today. It's easy for us to go through the external rituals of worship while ignoring genuine internal worship. God doesn't care if we sing songs with our lips. What matters is are we engaging in, are we worshiping him with our hearts? You know, we sang at the end there that, that last song that, that Bruce uh, had us sing, Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing. I love it at the end there, the very last line of that song. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. God cares about what's going on in the heart. When you sing, your, your, your mouth may be moving, but, but what matters is what's happening in your heart. Are the words, you know, are the words of the song that you're singing, are they helping you, you form words of worship to God in your soul? You know, we can sing along the words. Most of us know a lot of these songs, and we can just do it without even thinking about it. And worship can become that way. It can become that way with Scripture. It can become that way with prayers. You know, the prayer I grew up with, Almighty and most merciful Father, we, thy unworthy servants, to give thee most humble and hearty thanks for all thy goodness and loving kindness to us and to all men. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, for the inestimable love and the redemption of the world by the Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and by the hope of glory. <laughs> I haven't worshipped in that form in over 40 years. But growing up, it's still up here. And I can rattle it off without even thinking about the words, about what they mean, about my relationship with God, if I'm not, if I'm not, if I'm not careful with that. You know, sometimes people tell me that they like the music at church. And, and when I ask them what, what they like about the music, oh, I like it. It's a good melody. It's a catchy, it's a catchy tune. Well, we need to sing a song more them just because we like the tune. Now, now, tunes are important, Bruce. You know, tunes are important. But music must have good words, especially sacred music, the music that we sing and worship to God. They must have good words and sound theology 
that helps us form the worship and the gratitude in our hearts into the words that flow from our lips. And the same thing can happen when we're studying the Bible together. When a pastor is up here teaching, your body may face forward and you may look engaged, but, but sometimes your, your mind starts, come on, admit it, admit it, sometimes your mind starts to drift. And you think about the movie that you watched on Saturday night. Or you, or you start thinking, is he going to get done in time for the Seahawks kickoff? You know, or you're planning a meal, you've got people coming over for, for lunch after church. God doesn't want lips that sing words. He wants hearts that, are, that genuinely love him and want to follow him. And what Isaiah is saying, what Jesus is, is that God detests when people just go through the motions of worship. He wants our hearts. And that was a problem. That was a concern with the Jewish leaders. They were, they were concerned about ritual. They were concerned about the externals rather than what's going on inside. And this can also be a problem, as I've said, for you and for me. Later in chapter 12, Jesus is going to be asked, uh, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, the most important is this. It comes from the Shema that we mentioned earlier. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And next week, as we continue in chapter 7, we're going to examine the topic of heart worship versus lip worship in more depth. Now, I'm not done. We still got the rest of this week. The other thing that Jesus talked about was about how traditions that take on as much authority as the Bible will lead us away from the Bible. And folks, I don't know about you, but I'm serious about Scripture. And I'm serious because this is a scary thought, that our traditions, the things that we, that we bring in, the things that start out good, and I'm talking about traditions here in church, tradition, our traditions can lead us away from God's Word. The Jews in Isaiah's day and, and the Jews in Jesus' day gave their traditions the same level of authority as Scripture as we saw earlier. And as a result, they were putting their traditions above God's words. Remember, the original intent was good. They started with a good purpose. They were to protect the law. But when our traditions take on a level of authority like God's word, that will lead us away from God's word. And that happened in the time of Isaiah. It happened in the time of Jesus, and it still happens today. Jesus then gives an example here in Mark chapter 7. He gives us an example of what this looks like in action as he speaks about the, the practice of what the Jewish word is korban, the Hebrew word is korban, or dedicated offerings. He says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, See how he's contrasting? Moses, he got this directly from God, says, honor your father and mother, but you say with your traditions, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever you might otherwise have received from me, that is Corbin. It's his dedicated offering. It's devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullified the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And note this, you might want to circle this on there. And you do many things like that. Jesus said, this is just one example, folks. We're, I'm going to give you this example, but there's many things that you do like this, he's telling these religious leaders. Now, Corbin was similar to the concept of deferred giving. You know, when, when a person gives part or all their possessions to a charity upon their death. 
And Corbin was this tradition that the rabbis developed in order to increase the amount of money given to the temple in Jerusalem. And once someone had declared their property, be cor- property to be Corbin, the priest discouraged them from ever withdrawing it from the Corbin vow. Once the property was designated this way, you were not allowed to give the property, according to the rabbis, away or to sell it or use it for the profit of another. You could use it for yourself, but the rabbi said technically it belonged to God so that you couldn't do something else with it. The problem was that in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, it tells, it tells children must honor their parents. And that command is not just for little bitty ones, okay? That's for children of all ages. But it spells out the responsibility for adult children, that adult children have to take care of their, their aging parents. And it is a very important responsibility in God's eyes. Other parts of the Old Testament tell us that, that, that children who dishonor their parents could be subject to the death penalty. That's how important it was to God. Honoring and caring for aging parents is a serious responsibility. Because remember, there was no Social Security there, but even without Social Security or not, it's important because God said so. If someone had dedicated their possessions to this Corbin, the rabbis would not allow them to sell their possessions and use the money to care for their aging parents. Well, mom and dad, I know you're struggling to make ends meet. You you don't have stuff for retirement. You're about to be evicted, but this is all dedicated to God. It has a higher purpose. And this is our key point in action here. When our traditions rise to the same level of authority as the Bible, they will lead us away from following what God says. Five years ago, we had the the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And one of the key issues of the Reformation was the place of tradition in the church and how much authority tradition held compared to the authority of Scripture. And every time we put our traditions on the same level as authority of the Bible, they will lead us away from the Bible. Yes, I've said it like four times now because it's an important thing for us to know. It bears repeating. Now, of course, we would never do that, would we? We would never put tradition above what the Bible teaches. But this can be seen in in, in such things as how we take up the offering or when we do the announcements or whether the pastor wears a coat and tie or if the pastor shows up in jeans or whether the pastor takes his shoes off when he's preaching or the style of worship. Style of worship is probably the biggest tradition that that Protestant churches have stumbled over in recent years. When a church tries something new in worship and pushes us out of our comfort zone, it's easy to get upset. But musical style is not a biblical issue. It's a preference issue. It's often tied to the traditions where we grew up and, and we tend to prefer you know, I had a lady about 10 years ago was in a meeting with Gabe Cedillo. Many of you remember Gabe. She was in a meeting with Gabe and I, and she told me, well, we just need to sing the hymns. And I said, okay, which hymns? Well, what do you mean, which hymns? And I knew she grew up in a certain denomination. I said, do you mean those hymns? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's what I grew up with, not realizing what she was saying. Well, I said, well, I can tell you by, by experience, the hymns that I grew up with in the Anglican Episcopal Church are not the same hymns that my wife grew up with in the Baptist Church. And I'm familiar with, I'm familiar with the book the, that the Christian Reform uses, and, there were, and those aren't the same hymns. And you've got some people like the Presbyterians that have got rid of all hymns that sound militaristic, like onward Christian soldiers. So the point is hymns aren't hymns aren't hymns. What she meant is she wanted us to sing the music that she grew up with. And she was a pastor's kid. Nothing against pastor's kids. I got three of them. But um, <laughs> she wanted us to sing the, the, the hymns that she had grown up with. And I tried to explain to her that 
style of worship is, is something that we, that we stumble over. It's, 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 a, it's not a biblical, it's just a preference issue. The Bible tells us we have great freedom when it comes to worship music. And, and my, my, my two things that I look at is, is it, does it honor God and is it inviting to people? There's some songs, there's some Christian songs you hear on Christian radio that are not good for Sunday morning because it's too hard for people to sing. And they're not appropriate for worship. They've got great theology, they've got great stuff, but, it's, but even those aren't appropriate to sing. The Bible tells us that we have great freedom. In Ephesians, it tells us to sing to one another the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And unfortunately, though, it doesn't take too long for brothers and sisters in Christ to start treating one another in a very unchristlike way when their music traditions are violated. And someone's true spiritual maturity is seen when he or she gets uncomfortable over a music issue in church. And so how do they handle it? You know, will they gossip with other people in the pools? That'll never happen. Will they say hateful things? Will they say hateful things about their brothers and sisters in Christ? Will they send anonymous hate mail? They may not call it hate, but that's what it is. To the pastor each week. Will they talk about the pastor behind his back? You know, is it easy? It's easy to, to give more importance to a style of worship, whether it be new or old, than we give to the Bible itself. And we're going to illustrate that here in a few minutes as we look at application. You know, the, the Bible doesn't tell us a, a, a right or wrong style of worship. It does clearly tell us how we're to treat one another when we have disagreements over issues, including issues like worship. So what matters in Scripture? What matters to us according to Scripture? What should matter to us according to Scripture? The first is we are to love one another. We are to love one another. This is the message, John says, you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Jesus said, and they will know that you're my disciples by your traditional music. No. He said, they'll know you're my disciples, what? By your love one for another. And when the outside, the people outside the church, those who aren't Christians yet, see us fight amongst ourselves over petty things. I mean, I know Baptist churches, I, I'm, just a disclosure, I went from Anglicanism to Baptist, okay, now I'm non-denominational. But I know Baptist churches that fight over what color of carpet to put in the sanctuary. They fight over which side to put the organ or the piano on. They fight over whether the choir should wear robes or not wear robes. I know one lady once that sent a, they put a note in the offering plate that, that said that the uh, pastor's wife should pay closer attention to the crease in his trousers. <laughs> Just saying. When the world sees stuff like that, do you think they want to be part of that? They're going to feel more love at the local bar than they do here, if that's what's going on. You don't know how much you love someone until you disagree with them, and, how you, have, and you have to choose to love them. It's when people are hard to love that you find out that you truly love them. And I'm going to try not to break down here, but this, it's worth in my notes. Just let me say that we're honoring a man next Saturday. Dave Newville. And Dave and I had some disagreements on things. He was on my advisory team and all, but I loved the man, and I grew to love him even more, and I know that he loved me. And that's the way things should happen. Go on before I lose, lose it here. The second thing, we are to humbly serve one another. It says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Jesus showed him this there in the upper room. They get there for the Passover meal. 
Everybody's looking around. Well, who's going to wash 30 feet? And the master, he picks up the towel and he bends down and washes feet. And of course, Peter, you, oh, you ain't going to wash me. No. Well, if I don't wash you, you got no part. Okay, then give me a shower, everything. <laughs> Washing feet means that we're to, to be known for serving one another. Washing feet is the lowest and most humbling form of service, but it's illustrative of how we should be. We're to be known for serving other people in extravagant ways and for putting ourselves in the position of greatest humility in our service. And I've got folks that serve me. You know, my, my, my chief servant, the guy that I know loves me and serves me day in and day out is Joe Heward sitting back there. Bruce serves me. There's not a day that's gone by this season that Bruce hasn't said, hey, bro, what can I do? How can I help you? What can I do to take something off your plate? How can I serve you? It brings tears to my eyes because this is what Jesus is talking about. This is illustrative of how we should serve one another. Instead of insisting on my tradition, my preferences, what I want, we should be known for serving others, gladly sacrificing our desires, our preferences, for the kingdom's sake, for the sake of the kingdom, for drawing people close to this Jesus that we say with our lips that we love, but do we really love him enough with our hearts that we're willing to put our personal preferences aside? Thirdly, we are to place other people before ourselves. It says in Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. We're to be known for how we work to get along with one another and how do we work together. We're not to be known for breaking up relationships or for getting even with other people because we have differences with them. Fourthly, we're to put up with one another in love. And, and I'll just say confession, this is, this is one of my struggles. I struggle with this, I really do. I struggle to put up with one another in love. It says in Ephesians 2, be completely humble and gentle. There it is, gentle. Be patient. Patience isn't my strong suit, folks. And some of you know that. You say, amen. <laughs> I heard that. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. This means that we're to be, we're to be known for being patient with one another. Bearing with them in, in love means that, that even when they're hard to put up with, we're patient, we're kind, when situations become tense. And this, this last one that I'm thankful for because this kind of, after that one we just talked about comes, we are to be quick to forgive one another and not hold a grudge. Be kind and compassionate to one another, Ephesians says, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. Think about it. Do you want God to forgive you the way that you forgive others? He talked about that in the, in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses, our debts, our sins, as we forgive. Oh, no, no, no. I don't want, I don't want that kind of forgiveness. Lord, I, Lord, I want that, that full forgiveness. Well, God expects us to give it to others. We're to be known for our willingness to forgive one another and not hold a grudge. We're to forgive other people freely, freely, unconditionally, and as completely as Christ forgives us. So while traditions are not wrong, we need to be careful the place that we give them. It's easy to elevate them to a place where we consider them just as important as the Bible. And if, they, if we do, it'll always lead us away from the, the life that Christ calls us to as his followers. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at sv.com.
M-I-N.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day. Oh, 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 oh,